Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, Play On Podcast listeners, this is Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. If you've been listening to all our bonus interviews, you probably have figured out that I really love talking to theater artists about their craft. Well, it turns out there's somebody else who likes talking about the performing arts just as much as I do, if not more. My friend Jeff Zinn has created a podcast series called Gurus, and it's all about the craft of acting. I thought you might like Gurus too, so I asked Jeff if he wouldn't mind letting us listen in to an episode of the series. Once we agreed on a date for the feed drop, I gave Jeff a call to learn a little bit more about where this series came from. Jeff, tell me, how did this project come into being? I've been doing audiobook production and narration in, in my own home studio. And so I had the tools to do it. So you were interested in the story of acting as a craft and how it's been taught, how it's been handed down generation to generation. Stanislavski turned a corner into bringing truthfulness and and being able to teach actors how to bring authentic emotion and a sense of being present into uh into the work actors are still accessing these tools every day um and one of the interesting things that i've discovered is when i reach out to actors in the conversations that we've had, people like Alfre Woodard and B.D. Wong and Michael Cerverus, um, I find that they're really happy to have been asked about how they, about the tools that they use, where they gathered them, and how they apply them in their work today. And it's, an, it's a process. And um, actually, the word uh, that I'm using a lot is it's a practice, um, like Tai Chi or yoga. It's something that you work on every day uh, that you're engaged in in this art form. Actors are everywhere. Actors are so ubiquitous in our culture. We're bombarded by actors in all these different different media. And all of us are, I mean, who isn't binging Netflix? Who isn't what, you know, uh, interested in what's going on at the movies? Um, that says to me, that suggests to me that anybody or everybody should be interested in this story because these people are so much part of our lives. That's Jeff Zinn talking to me about gurus. Take a listen now to Jeff's tour through some recent history of the craft of acting, followed by his interview with the brilliant actress Alfre Woodard. Enjoy. This is Gurus, the story of acting. It's a big story with juicy characters and events, but I'm not going to attempt to tell the whole story. That would be too much. I mean, we could go back to the Greeks or the Egyptians or at least to Shakespeare. No, I just want to do about a hundred years. That's enough. That's the bit that I think is most relevant to where we are right now. Something happened about a hundred years ago, well, 124 to be precise, that brought us to where we are today. 
It was around that time great writers started moving away from artifice and fable and toward a more truthful representation of the world around them. They were embracing a new realism. In literature, it was Pushkin, Flaubert, Mary Shelley, and Emily Bronte. In the theater, it was Ibsen, Strindberg, Shaw, and Chekhov. The modern plays they wrote demanded a different kind of actor, actors who could deliver the truth. Of course, Shakespeare had invented the human, as Harold Bloom so eloquently put it, 400 years earlier, humans that were complicated, three-dimensional. But Shakespeare complained that his actors were not yet up to the task of portraying the complexity of those humans. And then in 1898, a pair of theater impresarios, Vladimir Nemirovich Denchenko and Konstantin Sergeyevich Alexeyev, better known as Stanislavsky, jumped on the realism bandwagon to form the Moscow Art Theater. They weren't alone and they weren't the first, but the creation of the Moscow Art Theater provides a kind of marker between what came before and what came after. Everything that we see in front of us today flows from that cataclysmic event. After Stanislavski comes Meyerhold and Vakhtangov, Jacques Coupeau and Michel Saint-Denis, Brecht and Grotowski, the group theater, the actor's studio, and the neighborhood playhouse. Even the iconic London conservatories, Rada and Lambda, would be transformed. And today, actors are everywhere literally everywhere you look, coming at us from the masses of media that invade our eyes and ears. Movies, television, plays, improv, opera, commercials, billboards, TikTok, YouTube, Congress, the White House. Somewhere near your field of vision, a human is pretending at urgency in an imagined situation. All these actors up in our faces all the time are so ubiquitous that we barely notice them as a phenomenon. It's as if actors were the dark matter that runs in between everything else. We're bombarded with stories told by actors. And of course, the stories of individual star actors have been told and retold. But we haven't really heard their collective story the story of how the craft of acting came to its present condition. The actors that fill our screens and stages that we binge helplessly in lockdown are the result of a journey of advancement from the rather bad, stagey, artificial, over-the-top to what we have now, at least what we have at the very top of the pyramid, subtle, authentic, true, human. But it wasn't always so. It's hard to pick the exact moment when things went from pretty bad to quite good. But if there's a moment when we started noticing how really good it was, it might be around the time of the film Midnight Cowboy. I've been thinking, I hope we're not going to have a lot of trouble about my name down there. Because, I mean, like, what's the whole point of this trip anyway, you know? Keep your blankets on you. I mean, can you see this guy running around a beach all suntan and he's going and swimming like, and somebody yells, Hey, Ratcho, what's that sound like to you? Sounds like a new year. Sounds like crap, admit it. I'm Rico all the time, okay? 
We're going to tell all these new people my name's Rico. Okay? Okay. That's Dustin Hoffman and John Voigt showing us how it's done in 1969. Then came Badlands with Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen. Then The Godfather, The Deer Hunter. All at once, we're treated to Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton, John Cazal, Christopher Walken, not to mention the method granddaddy of them all, Marlon Brando, who had been blowing our minds since On the Waterfront and Streetcar. But now he had company, good company. And today, at the highest levels, consider Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, Nina Arianda, Denzel Washington, Riz Ahmed, Fiona Shaw, Alfre Woodard. These are incredibly skilled character actors, shapeshifters. But they aren't just presenting us with interesting exteriors. The shapes are enriched with the most deeply felt emotions and a sense of lived experience. The Russian word for that is Perjavani. How did we get here? It's no accident that Dustin Hoffman studied with Lee Strasberg, and John Voigt was taught by Sandy Meisner, gurus. Lee was the leading light at the actor's studio. Sandy ran the neighborhood playhouse. Both had been members of the group theater in the 1930s when Russian fever was racing through the New York theatrical community. Everyone was talking about Stanislavski. A few lucky ones had studied with Richard Boleslavsky and Maria Uspenskaya, both former members of the Moscow Art Theater who had fled Russia after the revolution. Stella Adler had traveled to Paris on her own dime to sit at the feet of the master, Stanislavsky himself, and transcribe his system onto a chart. Another Russian exile and former MAT member Michael Chekhov nephew of the playwright, had stunned New York with a Russian-language Inspector General on Broadway, right down the street from where Awake and Sing was playing. The landscape of American acting was changing fast. The seemingly sudden transformation of American actors that bubbled up in screen performances like those in Midnight Cowboy actually had started with those late 19th century playwrights like Ibsen and Chekhov, whose plays called out for a new kind of actor. In one version of how we got from there to here, Stanislavski devises a system, a way of working for the actor to deliver a truthful performance, which he puts to work in the plays of Chekhov with his company, the Moscow Art Theatre. Their tour of the United States after the Russian Revolution triggers a wave of change that crashes onto the American theater, spawning a kind of Stanislavski family tree of gurus whose influence washes out and over everything up to and including the present day. After that, the group theater would emerge to transform Broadway. A decade later, they would dissolve and explode like a supernova, throwing out into the cosmos the flaming comets of Strasbourg, Meisner, Adler, Kazan, and Uta Hagen. That's the American-centric version of the story, but it's not quite that simple. 
There was another parallel saga taking place in Europe with its own cast of characters. Jacques Copeau, Suzanne Bing, Michel Saint-Denis, and later Doreen Cannon and Joan Littlewood, among others. To really understand acting as we know it today, we need to tell their stories too. It begins with Stanislavski, but he was not the only theater practitioner interested in Peter Giovanni, Truth with a capital T. In Paris, Jacques Copeau was thinking along the same lines. Using an approach and methods very different from Stanislavski, he established a training program for young actors that would get at the truth using improvisations, animal exercises, mask, music, anything that might cut through the stale conventions of the Comédie Française that had been going strong since 1680. Copeau's collaborator and mistress was a woman almost forgotten today named Suzanne Bing. Copeau was the guru who became world famous, but many of the original teaching ideas and techniques came from her. There are many strands of this story that weave through France and England, then to America, and then back again across the pond. Gurus emerge, make profound marks on generations of actors, and then fade. In the 50s, an American named Doreen Cannon, a student of Uta Hagen in New York, is invited to teach The Method in London. Her students include bold-faced names like Pierce Brosnan and Colin Firth. This is where it all starts to come together. Classical training in stylized movement and the heightened language of Shakespeare and Moliere is made new by the truth-oriented physical approaches of Bing, Copeau, and Saint-Denis, which then meld with Stanislavski's Peter Giovanni and the internal so-called method approach that, above everything, valorizes the ability to surrender truthful emotion, the perfect marriage. Today, that kind of hybrid, inclusive training incorporating Stanislavski, the method, and to borrow from the title of Saint-Denis' book, The Rediscovery of Style, has become the template for training programs everywhere. It's much more than just the method, and it has spawned a whole new generation of actors who can truly do it all. Yes, the Russians and the French invaded the U.S. and England and infected the theatrical community with the Stanislavski virus, thus beginning the long propagation of its many variants. But beyond that, the reach of what they learned and taught now extends to every school play, community theater, university program, regional theater, professional touring company, on and off and off-off Broadway theater or downtown loft, and every screen on the planet, past, present, and probably future. You can't escape it. I'm calling this podcast Gurus because the story we are going to hear is littered with them. There seems to be something in the nature of actors, call it curiosity or perhaps insecurity, that drives them to seek out teachers, systems, methods to help them overcome this inherent insecurity 
the mystery of inhabiting a character entirely different from their own, truthfully and believably. This is a story about survival, of relentless pushing and striving for parts, for opportunities, for butts and seats, for reputations, for gurus and for acolytes. In future episodes, I plan to tell those stories in as much depth as possible. Alongside the history, I'll be speaking with the actors who are still drawing inspiration from this long tradition. I want to ask them, who were your gurus? How do you bring what you learned from them into your work today? You'll get a taste of that in this excerpt from my conversation with Alfre Woodard. Ah, a thing came up asking me all kinds of questions. Do I support Zoom and a bunch of shit? <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm not looking for a relationship. Get out of here. Let the interrogation begin. Thank you so much for making the time to do this, Alfre. I really appreciate it. When I discovered that there was a place that I could like earn my keep among the population, the family of man, by telling stories, that initial thing was film. So I had, I had always planned to you know, after my training at BU, which was up for the stage, that I was taking off, getting back to why why I wanted to do it, why I thought to do it in the first place. So it will be 50 years, maybe, uh, this next fall when I went to California after mm -hmm. BU. It was a big program where you started day one. You started your major. They called it theater, but within the theater program, you could major in acting, directing, playwriting, design. So when you got to BU, who, who did you study with there? And tell me about the training there. So even as an actor, you are meant to take Shakespeare theory, speech for the stage, how we do all of the exercises that strip away dialect so that you can build dialect when you need it for character. And there was movement for the stage. So there were always two different movement teachers and they incorporate dance or, you know, martial arts, fighting uh, bar, you know, just any moving through space. But the acting was just, you live for it every day because you had two acting classes each semester, two different teachers, and each year you got a new set. So there was, there was a lot of focus uh, on different approaches, but you would have two different approaches at the same time. Mm. So that first year, I'm thinking, oh, it was Michael Howard, and Maxine Klein. The next year was James Malcolm, I think, and Rose Shulman. One year they threw Word Baker in the last year, who was like a, a big uh, musical theater person in, in the senior year. It's like singing and <laughs> dancing, and an actor, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he broke broke us of that. Yeah, it was it was exciting because <laughs> you discover that you have. It's a language that you understand immediately. When I was in high school, that I didn't know that language exists and I wasn't really interested in it. I was an athlete growing up. It's as if I was walking around on dry land before I was 15 and doing the breaststroke. And it's as if when I got to the stage and when I innately knew how to honestly inhabit a person, 
it was as if somebody had tipped me over into the water in that same stroke suddenly gave me breath for the first time. Mm-hmm. It, I just experienced such, such freedom. It was like, you want that hit of oxygen. You want to live in that, that freedom. I was hearing and seeing it felt like for the first time and breathing for the first time. So once you discover that for me, you have to perfect it. You have to train it. You know, you have to practice it. So it really was a process thing. And it was also the time of man. I was in school, in high school in the late 60s. I graduated in 70. So we were trying to stop the war. We were burning our bras. We were, you know, standing for with the American Indian movement. It was that shot Malcolm, Megger, Bobby, uh, Martin. And it's like, holy shit, the people who think like the prophet that I really respect, Jesus, you get mowed down for the shit that it says in in the Constitution, the things, all of our rights you can get if if you stand up for that. For all of us, I think, in that age, it was like, and so being young, you do, you just have a visceral reaction. You hit the streets with all that energy. You have a sense of purpose as a, as a young person and especially as an artist. And I saw them all combined. My, my artistic bent, my political beliefs and my spirituality all had came together. And it was like storytelling, tell these stories. And the films that I was being shown I, I knew that how powerful the moving image was, and I just wanted to join it. Hadn't decided how I would, but I knew I would join it and discovered this, you know, the acting thing. So you didn't feel a conflict between your desire to um, be an activist and to be a th- in the theater and to be an actor? You know, you can't be a Black person in Oklahoma. You got to decide not to be an activist, especially if you're a girl person. But anyway, so yeah, they they go hand in hand because you're telling stories for the people. Storytelling is a is a healing art, a healing practice. When you come to it from that, you realize there's a responsibility to hone that impulse or that talent or into a skill just out of respect, also so that you can depend on it. You know, you wouldn't get up before people say with this beautiful grand piano going, today I'm gonna play you something I'm I feel. But if you if you haven't learned to play the piano and if you yeah. haven't practiced it, you don't respect that instrument, you know, it's an insult to the people right. that have come to have a, a musical experience to lift them. I wouldn't go to a doctor to put a stent in if that person was just like, hey, you know, I'm going to be your, your cardiologist today. It's like, let me see what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Someone with some know. skills and training. Because you're called to it and, and just learning the history of it as I go. See, you have impulses when you're young, but you can only see how far in front of you or around you that your experience hmm. takes you. So every step I took, the horizon widened and I was learned more about what seemed like instinct. I figured out that it, it was broader and deeper. You know, I could just feel whatever I wanted to feel on my own. I don't act so I can feel things. You have a purpose and you're actually joining a tradition that is as ancient as when we first stood up around a fire. 
you have to honor that. Mm-hmm. And you try, everybody finds different ways to honor that. Every acting person, that practitioner of it. But that's just how I came to it and how I, how I practice it. Because you can't teach acting. What you can do is open people up to find their own practice, their way of getting to standing in the flesh, recreating a human action, and not being themselves while they do it. That's the whole thing about training is it gets rid of everything that would stop you from a truthful presentation of a very specific and particular human mm. life. So you, you're, you're actually stripping away instead of taking things on. That's what I got from the people that I worked with. I hadn't realized that Michael Howard, I mean, he was very influential with a lot of people. I didn't realize that he had been at BU. Do you have any takeaways from what he brought to you? We did a lot of sense memory with Michael. I remember that. You might have 20 minutes on stage in the black box where your class is reaching for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever it is and experiencing taking a sip of that. But knowing that you've got 20 minutes before that cup gets to your mouth, he was able to calm me down to the point that I appreciated, I understood, I recognized every moment in a larger moment. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you present. It keeps the artifice away. And it, it goes into life. It's uh, That was probably my first form of meditation and didn't know it. You know, it's like this slow, slow dance. So doing that work with Michael, that's what it did for me. Just honest. We did scenes. We did walking improvisations where he just said, get up there. He'd have somebody in a, in a bathtub and he'd say, get in there. And you didn't know who you were or what. Introducing the idea of staying in the moment and listening and responding rather than coming in with an agenda, rather than pushing a story. Hmm. Because the thing is, people, we have an intention. We might want something when we walk in a room, but everybody else has an intention. God, do we see all everybody's intentions like conflicting now? That's drama. <laughs> yeah. When, when I think about it, I just remember freedom so much. It's like, you know, that thing that you felt that kind of freedom, it is a principle. It is, you know, and you can depend on it and you can use it. It's like a key on a piano, you know, and I learned from him and James Malcolm that my, my whole body, as well as my emotional history and, and present is my instrument. Somewhere in that mix of Michael, Jim Malcolm, Rose Shulman, in all very different ways, and Maxine, there's somewhere in there that honesty, somewhere in that exercising of the four years with those people, you know, a false note is like staying in your underpants. You know, when you go to the beach or in your swimsuit, it's like, hmm, that Mm. It's like, woo. So it's not, you don't have to think about it. It's like, you know, when you lie. <laughs> Most people just want to be understood. Mm. Uh, now they say they want to be seen, but we don't, we especially don't want to be misunderstood. So it's a big deal for a, for a character 
that person gets to have their story told. And that's all the billions of people in the world wanted. So I'm the only person standing between that person who hit the mega million jackpot to get their story told mm-hmm. and people hearing it to understand them a little more. Mm-hmm. It's a joy mm-hmm. to be called in that moment to do that. Even if it's something like clemency, it is still a joy to be in a space where you, it doesn't matter how you feel about that person. You have to find how they look out of their eyes and present it without your opinion of it, your your stank on it. <laughs> mm. I know that Colored Girls was a, was a very important moment in your career. Ever since I realized there was someone called a colored girl, a evil woman, a bitch, or a nag, I've been trying not to be that. Leave bitterness in somebody else's cup. Come to somebody to love me without deep and nasty smelling skulls from lie or being left screaming in a street full of lunatics, whispering slut, bitch, bitch. Nigga, get out of here with all that. I didn't have any of that for you. I brought you what joy I found. And I found joy. It was an expression that had not happened for Black women forever. Talk about giving us a language about something we was so familiar, but you couldn't put your finger on it because there weren't words to, to who that. And Tzaki Shande put those words that got as close to a lot of the feelings not necessarily the experiences, but the feelings that Black women of every every culture, even white women who felt, you know, a lot of the things had happened to them. See, because if you're writing universally, it should touch some parts of everybody that hears the story. The fact of the colored girls and the recognition now of how much our lives, we thought, our lives as Americans historically have been built and lifted by Black women. The very democracy, the practice of democracy, frankly, right now rests on the awareness, the insistence, the the, the watchfulness, the participation of Black women. And I see a direct arc from Colored Girls, because Colored Girls was more of a, it, be, it was a movement. It was a coming into power from ancient times. I really wanted to hear about C. That world is so specific and the technical demands on you as actors to inhabit the blindness. So I wanted to ask you about the uh, choreography and the vocal work and the movement work that was involved in that. It just strikes me from the outside that there was some very specific work going on and there must have been people who were working you guys. Uh, what You weren't just making it up as you went along. Blessed by morning. I feel water. Come. 
Where were you, Ben? I was delayed. My water broke. Ah. Now, I will sing your baby into the world. Find a way, child, way, child, way, child. Find a way, child, way to me. Bread of the mother hand, bread of the father hand. Find a way, child, way to me. Rise up. Oh, the head is coming first. That's good news. Rise up, child, rise and Oh, Margaret, I feel a little ear. It's like a slippery bud. I guess at different points in your in your life you you have different things that that pique your interest and that you want to try to do but I specifically said I need something that excites me that I don't know how to do when you've done it 50 years 30 years out the people that you can learn something from every time you suit up, they started to go on. So you're dealing with people that couldn't tell you anything. So we had to depend on each other. You get your help from other actors. So I was like, oh, damn, every scene is outdoors. I'm there. Oh, damn. People have been blind for 400 years. I'm there because I have no fucking idea what that means or how to get there. It was everything I thought it would be. It was It was extremely challenging physically uh, because we were outdoors through the fall and winter. It didn't matter. Sometimes we were up to our shins and either snow, water, or mud. And, it, you know, you just had to do it. And you're climbing and all. And you're not able to see. The actor is not able to look down or reference the way you would for your own safety. We had Joe Stretchy a remarkable man who was our blindness coordinator, producer. He taught us the language. So we, we probably about five weeks out, all the actors went, not just the, the main actors on the call sheet, but, you know, a hundred extras, everybody. We had to train in that language of how to be, how to actually see when you don't have the sense of sight. As an actor, even now, I'm starting to look away from you because that's something that we learned. It took me really a couple of years after I finished my last season to look at people when I'm talking to them because you start to listen in other, you start to see in other ways. And mm. so the training had to do with, with literally echolocating. If you're not using your eyes, and it started off like that first week, maybe using just like a nightshade or something so you didn't cheat. So this, so you could, then you really had to listen. You had to smell. You had to, there was just, there's so many other ways of, of navigating the landscape. And so we, yeah, we trained uh, just over a month before we even got to set. Also, as an actor, especially for camera, when your whole thing is open those eyes and tell the story, we should be able to know so much about what you're saying. That's where you communicate is is the depth of your eyes. And my hearing is is like acute. It's crazy. I have canine hearing and smell. But for some reason, I watch people's mouths when they speak as if I'm lip reading. 
but that somehow I feel like I'm understanding them more, watching their mouth. Their mouth is in focus and their eyes are secondary in person. If I'm like, if I'm looking at something, I'm watching the eyes of the person that's, that's in the frame. In a way, it's complete, it goes completely opposite to how you've been trained to go into the eyes and to connect with the other person through the eyes. And how to tell a story with your eyes. Many thanks to Michael Goodfriend and the rest of his team at Next Chapter Podcasts for making us a part of their wonderful platform and giving us the opportunity to spread the word. Gurus, the Story of Acting was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club, Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, and Nicholas Hassong with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle, with additional sound by Palmer Hefferin. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening. Next Chapter Podcasts.